I hope your uh, summer's going well. It's warming up finally, I guess. Um, so let's, um, so today we're going to, I am going to talk about, well, we're on to Genesis. So I'm going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, a fun subject. Um, people, uh, we're going to talk about why, I think we're, what I want to do is talk about why, uh, why Sodom was destroyed. Also talk a little bit about Lot, like why is, was he really righteous? What was his situation? Um, let's open with prayer. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us all here. Um, we're just honored to come in your presence, Lord, and study your word. Lord, just open our heart and our mind to your word so we might hear from you. In your name, just we pray. Amen. So before we jump right into those passages, we're going to do a little background, partly because um, those are not uh, sections that are just kind of there and then we, they, they have no relevance. They actually, they do kind of fall in place with everything else. And there's some stuff that happens before what occurred there that is important. Plus, it helps us kind of just review where we're at in the passage or in the, in the book. So I'm kind of just kind of starting right around with the beginning of Abram. You know, and he was in Haran when he encounters the Lord. And the Lord, uh, you know, the Lord talks to him about what he had, his plans for him. And it's kind of it's described as the call of Abram. At this moment, God promises going to make you a great nation and you will be a blessing to the world. Then, you know, as we were going through this, um, through the book of Genesis, we had the part where, where Seth talked about Abram uh, going with his wife, uh, Sarai, to Egypt, where he lies about his wife. Um, and things don't go well. He causes problems for everyone else because he lied. It's interesting how that worked out. He lied and everyone else suffered. Um, but, but despite the call on his life, he was afraid that he would be killed, so he lied. Then Abram comes back from Egypt, and the Bible tells us that his nephew Lot came with him. At this point, the Bible tells us that both have accumulated, it describes flocks, or a lot of flocks, herds, and tents. Clearly, they had been blessed, uh, and this caused a problem um, because the, the land could not, it says that the land could not support both of them, and there was some conflict. So Abram tells Lot, we have to separate, and he tells Lot, you know, you pick where you want to go, and I'll go to the other area. So if you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. And then the Bible says, Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zor. Pay attention to that name. This is what was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pinched, pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sitting greatly against the Lord. So this is some six chapters before the one we're looking at. So this is important. We'll see these cities come up again. We see then that the Lord at this moment tells Abram, look around to all you see. And he's gonna, the Lord is going to give that to his offspring there in Canaan. Next, we see Lot in danger. Um, and Abram has to save him. Uh, there was this war between some cities, Sodom and Gomorrah and others in that area were against some other cities. Um, and Lot is caught up in the middle. The Bible states uh, the following. Take note of, again, the names of the cities. 
Then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Ketelamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goem, Amraphel, king of Sinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. And this is back when, you know, city, it was more like city-states. The, the city was kind of like the state. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and, uh, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seemed all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah with all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, in his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So not only was there wickedness and they were evil, they were terrible fighters apparently too. Um, when Abram hears what happened, he calls out 318 trained men that were born in his household and pursues these kings, defeats them, recovers the goods, gets Lot back. Um, and what does this tell us about Abram? He wasn't just this solitary guy that had a tent. He was a guy of means. He had power. He had, uh, um, and, uh, so, he had so he had a lot. To call up 318 uh, men, that includes, so that means there was many more people that were kind of part of his area. When Abram returns, he meets the mysterious Melchizedek and the king of Salem who blesses him. And I say mysterious because we don't know a lot about him. It just says that he was a priest of the God Most High, and he kind of comes in and then he disappears again. And this is what he says. He says, blessed be Abram, by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything, the beginning of a tithe. The king of Sodom also meets Abram. He comes out to meet him in the plain and tells him, keep the goods. Just give me the people. Normally, someone would jump out, hey, score big. I can keep all these goods. I can increase my wealth. Um, <clears throat> But Abram surprises us, and his response, I think, might give us a little picture on the view of Sodom at this time as it was going forward. Um, clearly, as we will, as was more evident, uh, the destruction, as we see with the destruction of Sodom, there was already some history, and so Sodom, I guess, probably had a bad reputation. I, I'm guessing. When given the offer, this is what uh, Abram says. I have raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong or a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what, men have, what, my, what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to them who went with me to Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Of course, we don't know what, you know, what brought this about. You know, did God ask him to take this? Um, as he said, he, he took an oath. Um, he raised his hand. He took an oath to the Lord. Did God ask from this, or did he do this of his own volition? We don't know. Nonetheless, this is a sense that Abram does not want to be connected or be in, in, in debt or in any way, you know, connected to Sodom. Now, moving forward, moving on from there, you know, we see where Bill talked about, you know, the covenant between Abram and God, and, you know, it had that, the, 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 the fire that went through the pieces, um, and then uh, God restates his promise to make him a great nation. Wow. And then uh, Abram decides, after many years of God promising 
that he was going to make him a great nation. He decides he's going to like take it and things into his own hands and decides, well, I need to bring about my heir because that must be what God thought. So um, his wife, Sarah, his wife, Sarah, tells Abram, you know, you must uh, lie with my slave Hagar so that she can give birth to a child. And she has gives birth to Ishmael. But this doesn't go well. Despite Sarah's insistence that Abram do this, she's abusive to Hagar. So much so that Hagar flees. But the Lord has compassion on her and tells her to go back. And he blesses her and tells her that he will increase her descendants. However, God does say that Ishmael will live in hostility towards his brothers. Finally, we see the story, we see as the story goes along, the covenant of circumcision. Which brings us to our section. God also changes Abram's name to Abraham because he, God will make him the father of many nations. He also changes his wife's name, Sarai, to Sarah because she will be the mother of many nations. Many years have gone by since the initial promise. At this time, Abraham is 99 and Ishmael is 13 when God makes the covenant of circumcision. So, you got to think, he's made these promises and promises again and promises again. And then Abraham decides that, well, well I need to get my own heir. And then 13 more years go by. And then we have the, we have the, uh, have the, uh, the, the covenant of circumcision. But when God again promises Abraham that he will make him a great nation, he's a little more cynical. And he responds this way. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. God is pouring out his heart to him and announcing this joyous news. And Abraham laughs at him and suggests that God just use Ishmael. It reminded me too something Bill said. He says, you know, if you were to write a book that you're trying to convince people to follow the Lord, I... You know, there's so much stuff that you wouldn't put in there. You, well, we should. Be, I mean, we, we see these people and, and this how it goes, and it, and yet, yet it's still an amazing thing to, the, when you look at the Bible because you realize that these are real people and they have real feelings and they they're going through real circumstances. God is undeterred, restates the promises, and then this is the first time we have the name of Isaac appear. He says Isaac is mentioned for the first time. Nonetheless, God promises to bless Ishmael. Despite how that came about, God still blesses him. However, he makes it clear that the covenant to make Abraham a great nation will go through Isaac. In a few weeks, I'll be talking about the birth of Isaac and um, the, um, Abraham offering him as, as a sacrifice. Um, everything that has occurred before leading up to that is critical to what happens there. What happens with Isaac and all of that Everything that happened before is critical to that story. So something to think about if you want to go back and review. Um, And just a little foreshadowing, um, also the issue of God's patience uh, is key as well. He puts up with Abraham's unbelief as he does ours. So we move on from to where I'm talking about today in verse in chapter 18. And this is where it begins with the story of the three visitors that come to visit Abraham. So imagine this. 
It, the story tells us he, you know, he chose to be in Canaan, and there's this mention of the trees of Mamre, and I was going to put a picture of, but now I'm really nervous now with the whole copyright thing, people get in trouble, and I know with the pictures, and I, there's actually a place, and you can look it up, and it looks like these very large, almost like oak trees. It looks like they would be good for shade, um, and it's very hot there, I'm sure of. So he's there, he's sitting at his tent, and he looks out, and he sees three people sitting, uh, standing nearby. Um, and we don't know if he knew what the, who they were when he first saw them. He just sees three people. Now, he may have recognized that, oh, wait a minute, you know, these are people are unique, or maybe it was just three people. We don't know. But he jumps up and rushes to them. And he bows down, and he invites them to stay with him for a while. He says this, If I had found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and you will all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat. You can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Now, even though he says Lord and servant, that's a word that they seem to all use. So I don't know if you'd recognize that that was the Lord at this point. They agree to stay. And then we see Abraham and Sarah working really hard to provide what amounts to like a feast or banquet. Um, they spend several hours of preparation. Sarah bakes bread. So I'm always thinking about, oh, rest here and we'll give you a feast. And then I'm like, wow, that, I mean, hours had to go by. I mean, they were baking bread. That doesn't, you know, no micro, well, actually bread doesn't work in a microwave, does it either? Um, you have to actually put it in and wait, you know, and wait for it to rise. And then he went and got the calf and had it slain. Now, the thing is, why did he do this? Well, one is hospitality is a big deal. Um, you know, in this, at this area, actually, in, in, in some parts of the world, it still is a very big issue. It's a, loss, a bit of a lost art in the United States. Um, <clears throat> we're more concerned, more concerned about ourselves. But in many parts of the world, to not be hospitable is almost like a grievous sin. You know, it's like it, it's looked down uh, poorly. You know, and I was thinking about kind of life in, in the United States, and I was thinking about uh, playing this little clip from How I Met Your Mother with Barney, and, and it didn't really work. So, but in that, he, you know, his, his comment about as he gets older is, you know, you don't have to do things with your friends, you know, and his response, look, you need a place to stay, get a hotel room, you need to help moving, hire some movers, because that's kind of how it is in the U.S. We don't, we, we struggle with hospitals. Some people go, oh, I'm hospitable, right? You know, and I know I struggle with it. If you come to my house, you want something to drink, you know where the glass is, you know where the water is. What are your legs broken? You can't get up and do it yourself, right? I know it's really bad because the Bible does talk about how actually that's part of who we should. We should be hospitable. Um, some examples of that I think of today, um, and I do this from being in the Philippines and being in a Filipino church. Filipinos a lot of times are hospitable to, to a fault. And there's lots, of, I, I heard them talk about it, the pressure of always being very hospitable when people come. And I used to, I used to, because um, I went to church that was, was all Filipino and I was the only one not, I was I'm obviously not Filipino, right? Uh, and I wasn't dating or married to, my wife is not Filipino. Um, but I used to, one of the things I used to, I started to learn the tricks of is that if I was over somebody's house and I didn't want to eat anymore, you carried a plate around with you with a little food because people would stop bugging you about eating. Because every, if you didn't, it was like, eat, eat, like, I've already eaten, would you leave me alone? Because in that culture, it's very important to be hospitable and that's all reflective. I was thinking about some other things. Um, I don't know if you the story of, um, if you ever watched that movie Lone Survivor or what, what read the book and... Um, in that story, he actually survives because he 
ends up in a, in a village in Afghanistan where, you know, culturally, if someone comes to you in, like, for refuge, you know, you are supposed to defend them with your life. And, you know, <clears throat> those are things that in, in America you don't see so much. Um, unless, unless you talk about, like, the law of the sea. I was watching this show about how uh, it was talking about sea disasters. Yes, I watch bizarre things, but I was watching this. They were talking about how uh, this one container ship actually made a turn in rough seas, which is a big deal because if you're in rough seas, you want to kind of cut through the water. You don't want to turn like this so the waves can hit the side of it. But they did it anyway, and he makes the comment, we did this dangerous thing because it's the law of the sea. You don't leave somebody hanging. You, go, you risk your life to help them. Part of the reason for hospitality was individual safety. You look at travelers, you, you know, you did this because they didn't have another option. You know, you wanted to protect them from the elements, protect them from robbers. So returning to back into the story, Abram, we see Abram talking to the three visitors, and they're sort of talking about Sarah and asking about her. And they tell him, well, in a year she will give birth to a son. Sarah overhears this, and, it, and, and, then, and then it's her turn to laugh. The Lord calls her on this, and just like a child caught with his hand in the cookie jar, she lies. No, Lord, that's not my hand in the cookie jar. You're imagining it. Um, out of fear, she blurts out with a bold face, I did not laugh, to which the Lord says, yes, you did. Have you ever tried to hide things from the Lord? I'm sure we all have. We do things thinking the Lord won't notice. Well, if I do it here in my closet, the Lord can't see me, right? Um, we convince ourselves the Lord will not notice. This reminds me of a time, I, may, I, I know I've shared this story when I was young, and I got interested in fire, and um, my friend brought a match to his evening service. Some of you haven't heard this story, so I'm going to share it again. So he was in the, we were in the bathroom. We should have been in church. Um, and so he goes, you want to light it now or later? I said, light it now, right? So he lights it, and then he, I don't know, for some reason, lit the toilet paper. So I'm in the bathroom, like, pulling down the toilet paper like this, and he runs and gets some water and throws it on. And then we run out thinking, you know, okay, we, we didn't get caught. We'll get away with it. There's a little problem, though, because I was next to the fire. My hair was singed, and I stunk, right? So I'm just, you know, and my sister, I remember my, I saw that vision of my, old, my twin sister looking at me going, and she moved to the other side of the pew. No, Dad, it wasn't me. I don't, I don't know what would make you think that, right? So I got a little trouble over that. Um, now the current conversation then turns to Sodom. The Lord decides to explain to Abraham why he has come, and this is critical. The Lord said, uh, then it says, then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what, I shall, what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after me to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see 
if what they have done is, a, is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but um, Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And as we, as we learn amongst the three, the three visitors, one was the Lord, but two of them were angels. And it's the two angels that leave and go down to Sodom. Abraham is actually concerned about Sodom, and he begins to bargain for their lives. It says there that then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in that city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it for you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will, prepare, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Adam continues to do this until he gets the Lord down to agreeing to 10 righteous people. If there are 10 righteous people, he will spare the city. And then it shifts to Sodom. And we imagine this as the, th the two visitors, two angels, walk up to the city of Sodom. They find Lot, the nephew of Abraham, sitting near the gate. Now, we're not sure why he's sitting there. Oftentimes, city officials sat at the, at the front gate. They did business, what have you. He's there. He engages with them and invites them to stay at his house where, he, you know, where they can wash their feet and spend their night. They initially said no. We said, we're going to spend the night in the city square. After all, they were there to investigate. But he, he insists so strongly is what it describes that they go with him. Now, why is he so insistent? Perhaps, again, hospitality. That is part of it. Um, but I always wondered, you know, did he know something? Seeing how things turned out always made me think maybe he knew something might happen, which did happen, and he wanted to protect them. Lot invites them to, to his house and feeds them, but he doesn't have quite the feast that his uncle puts together. It has unleavened bread. And what that's significant is it means it didn't take as long to make. Um, then things go terribly wrong. And we see a rather terrifying scene. People surround the house. Men, it says men from young and old all over the city come to that house and start banging on the door, telling Lot, we knew these guys came to the town. Let them come out so that we can have sex with them. I was going to wonder if I was actually going to use those words. Boy, the Bible does not pull anything back. It does not hold anything back. It lays it out there as it is. Lot goes outside. He says he attempts to convince them to not to do such a thing. He responds to them. He says, no, my friends. I find it interesting he called them friends. Do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let them bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under, my, the, under the protection of my roof. Again, the Lord, the Bible really doesn't hold anything back. He pleads with them not to do the wicked thing. Clearly, there, um, there is an understanding of what right and wrong is going on. That's important. We don't have the Levit Levitical law, but there's still an understanding of right and wrong here. Um, unpersuaded, he offers his daughters. He does the unimaginable. It still shocks me. Every time I read that, I'm like, what the heck are you doing? But he does it. The men are unpersuaded, and they start to attack him, and they press against the door. There's a sense that the door may actually be pushing on the door, and there's these guys are, and there's real danger going on here. Um, and they respond to him in a rather abusive way. 
which is interesting because he called them friends. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said to him, this fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down to the door. They treat Lot terribly, degrade him because he himself is an immigrant to that city. He's not from Sodom. Um, and this is a typical response of people who do evil. You know, all he really asked them was just to leave these people alone. And now they start accusing him of things and accusing him of judging them and threatening him. The Bible tells us the angels pulled him inside and then caused everyone to be blind. The angels then tell Lot what will happen. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, son-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord, the outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he will send, he has sent us to destroy it. The angels tell him to gather any other family. He goes to his son-in-laws who are pledged to be married to his daughter. They thought he was joking and stayed. Now, I wonder about that, too. Where were they the night before? Uh, were they outside that door? I just it kind of am like, I'm really, I, I got all these questions, and I'm not going to get answers, but it just goes through my head. The next morning, Lot is hesitant, though. They, so the angels actually literally drag him and his family outside of the city. It's his wife, which is the first time we hear about his wife, and the two daughters. And the Bible tells us they did this because the Lord had mercy on them. Lot is told, flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. In fact, they're told more than once to flee as quickly as possible. There's an urgency. Lot is hesitant again. It's a little bit, you know, I don't know, is he dense or something? But I don't know. But um, he pleads with them and asks if he can flee to the town of Zor. Zor was mentioned before, right? It was a small city, and he said, hey, it's small. Can I go there? It's mentioned twice before. Something that you need to know is that it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed. It was all the cities of the plain. It's just those ones are the ones that are mentioned. Um, it's probably most of the cities that were mentioned before that were defeated by the four kings. Genesis, uh, the Bible says this. Uh, very, they, they responded, they said, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow that town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. So Lot is asking to go to Zor and the angels grant that request. Lot saved that city. Um, this is God keeping his promise to Abraham that he will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. By the time Lot reaches the sea, sir, city, burning sulfur rains down on the cities and destroys them. And we know that Lot's wife turns to, to salt because she looks back. The next morning, Abram awakes, walks out, and looks out on the plain and sees the smoke. And the Bible tells us this. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the ca catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. The passage finished with a rather disturbing story about Lot. Um, he and his daughters were in Zor, but he doesn't stay. Perhaps it was just as evil as Sodom and he couldn't live there anymore. So he flees to a clave where he remains apparently the rest of his life. Quite a contrast to what he had before with all his flocks and tents and everything else. His daughters realize that they won't have any children, so they devise a plot to get their, their father drunk. 
They both become pregnant. And I always think, imagine how that conversation went. So you're pregnant. Where, where did this happen? Because he didn't know. And they have children, um, but God actually um, blesses the children despite of how they, how they came about. And the, their children become the countries of Moab, Ruth was from Moab, and the Ammonites. So, that, so I want to finish with just some kind of final thoughts really on these passages, something to consider, and some of the questions I asked, particularly like, why, why destroy these cities? Why did God decide to destroy these cities? And really, you know, who is this guy Lot? One thing, though, first is interesting similarity between the story of Noah. One is you have the wickedness. The earth was flooded because of wickedness. The cities of the plain were destroyed because of wickedness. The deluge, as I says, the world was, where there was a deluge of water, whereas sulfur rains down from heaven. And then we, it ends badly. We know that the story of Noah, right? His Ham sees his nakedness. There's some issue there. He gets cursed. And here we have um, Lot's story ends in incest. Um, the second thing is, though, why destroy the cities of the plain? Because this has always been a little more curiouser to me. Why did he choose to do this now? Um, the angel tells Lot that um, this passage, okay, um, the outcry of the Lord against its people was so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Um, now, I say this, there's lots of wicked cities, so to speak. Uh, you know, what made this situation different? Uh, if you grew up when I did, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, Sodom and Gorham were always held out as examples of the sin of homosexuality. You know, growing up near San Francisco, I'd hear about, well, San Francisco is, you know, the modern day Sodom and Gomorrah, and that one, God, one day God is going to destroy it. If you didn't notice, it's still there. Right? In fact, now that I've lived in other places and been to other cities, I was just at New York last week, there's, there's lots of bad cities out there. I don't think there's anything unique. It, everyone has its unique sins. Um, I'm also reminded of Genesis 8.21, which we talked about before. Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures. Every, and I always, that always strikes me, is every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. I think that the focus on homosexuality is kind of missing a major thing about Sodom. It was not until I was much older that somebody pointed out to me, you know, the issue there really was about rape and abuse. That was, that was what they were intending. It wasn't some people who were attracted to somebody else. Um, and the Lord actually explains what the problem was with, uh, with Sodom. He says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters are, are, were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor or needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. They were a bad city, and it went just beyond that one issue. They did all kinds of bad things. I think that they destroyed these cities for two reasons. One is he wanted to show us what the result of wickedness is. This is what happens because of wickedness. Death comes. But there's a second thing, and this gets back to what Abraham talked about, is 
We see Abraham bargained with God, but this also reveals the character of God. God was not going to destroy them if there was righteous people there. He's not going to destroy the wicked. He's not going to, he's not going to take out the righteous for the sake of destroying the wicked. Second question I had is, who was Lot? Was Lot really righteous? Because when you look at him, he looks kind of befuddling. He looks a little dense. Uh, he's a little caught up in himself. And if you compared him to, um, to Abraham, you know, you get a very different picture. So here's kind of a little comparisons. Abraham offered land to Lot. Lot took the best land, right? Um, Abraham lives in tent, and as we see, Lot lived in an urban area, even though he had tents. But by the time he was in Sodom, he was living in Sodom. Abraham, you know, knows to provide a feast and banquet to his visitors. Lot provides a minimal amount. Um, Abraham, despite that he apparently didn't want to be too connected to Sodom, he still had compassion for the people. Um, <clears throat> and Lot chooses hospitality over protecting his daughters, which is really bizarre. Uh, Abraham was chosen by God. Lot benefits, was the benefit of God's covenant. Uh, Abraham's an impressive warrior. He went and, and got his, uh, his nephew back. Lot, you know, saves Zor for himself, and, and he wasn't even taken seriously by his own son-in-laws and even the people of, down, of, of that town. However, when I think about righteousness, this passage um, comes to mind. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Paul picks up on this in Romans, right? What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to, uh, to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. If our righteousness is dependent on what we do, we're in trouble. If Abraham and Lot's righteousness is dependent on what they did, it would be a problem for them. Because, by the way, we'll find out in a couple of weeks, Abraham ain't no, ain't no, I can't believe that, ain't no saint. Isn't much of a saint anyway. I shouldn't say ain't, right? I got, I got detention for that when I was in grade school for saying ain't. Um, I know, I'm sorry, I'm reliving my childhood. Um, uh, so, from the passage, we can see that, that Lot believed what God was going to do. So I guess, perhaps, it could be credited to him as righteous that he, just, he did believe. Um, in addition, the Bible describes Lot as being righteous. In Peter, it says, If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of the lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. I think that Lot's challenge is one that we face all the time. It's the allure of the world that competes against what God wants for us. And ultimately, I think the, uh, what God wants from us is to choose him. I mean, it was the, I mean he chose the luscious land. He, it, was the, it was like the Garden of Eden. He wanted to go there. He wanted to live there. Um, I'm not sure that he was really trying to save people's soul, but that's what he wanted to. And I think that was a battle. That was a struggle. 
And that can be a struggle in our own lives, that the, between the allure of the world and following after God. Since, the beginning, since we begin, began looking at Genesis, there's one thought that keeps going through my head. Why did God put the tree in the garden if he knew that people were going to, uh, were going to be tempted and fall? Like, why put it there to begin with? I mean, think about it. Think about somebody who struggles with alcoholism. If I know somebody struggles with alcoholism and I, and I take, you know, beer or something and leave it next to them and forget and they falter, who's going to be blamed for that? I would be blamed for that, right? How dare you? Don't you know? Don't you know? Yet God puts this tree in the, in the um, garden. So I'm like, well, why? And I think it's because God wants us. I think that God wants us to look at the tree, see that it is good, and that it will give us power, because they got more power from eating from it, but that we ultimately choose him. God wants us to choose him. And this leads us to my, back, my last point, God's patience. So if the uh, music uh, team wants to go back for the last message, this would be a good time. In the passage, we see a great example of God's patience. God is willing to give us time to choose him. A few weeks ago, Bill mentioned how he had grown up with this heavy-handed view of God. You know, he explained it to you. He says he stubbed his toe and his mom goes, oh, what did you do wrong, right? Like God is waiting to drop the hammer on you if you do something wrong. Um, I identify with that idea. I think that's something that sometimes we can struggle with, that God just appears like he's just waiting. Oh, you stepped over the launch slam, right? And he's just waiting to take out on you. I think it is something that we can struggle with. However, when looking at how God responds in the Bible, he actually gives us great discretion to do what we want. And he is not waiting to drop the hammer every time somebody does something wrong. Um, You know, like, oh, you looked at that person with lust, slam, you know, right? We don't see that. Conversely, we see a very different view. Think about Sodom. You know, the wickedness of these cities was known for some time. That's why I I mentioned the other references to them. It wasn't something that came out of the blue. It was known for a long time. Uh, We read in the passage where it's mentioned, uh, maybe maybe that is why God says the outcry has reached me, that he was was waiting, he was was patient. God is giving them time. And then it says the angels went to investigate. And I would say, well, does God really need to go investigate? God knows what's going on. He doesn't need to go investigate. However, I think God wanted to give them one last chance to change or to show that they weren't truly as wicked as they were. I think, I think of Nineveh. Nineveh sent Jonah, right? And he says, go preach to them and let's see how it goes, right? And they, they responded. I don't even think God was looking for them to repent. He was just looking for some sign of weakness. As he told Abraham, if I could find 10 righteous people, I'll leave them alone. And he couldn't even find 10. God gives us great discretion to live our lives. He is not holding a hammer to slam us every time we do something wrong. He is patient in waiting for us to choose him. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful day. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us to learn from what we learned today. And as we move forward, just help us to apply it to our lives. Bless us this week. Bring us back safely next week. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.